I'm Lawrence. And I'm Sam. And this is the first episode of our roundup of 2022. Over the next 50 minutes, we'll be talking about our best films of the year. From fantastical multiverses to nightmarish wastelands, we'll be discussing the films we've loved and adored. And stay tuned for the next episode where we'll tell you about our worst films of the year. We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films. And films are better than people. Here we are again at the last ever episode of Films Are Better Than People for 2022. Not released in 2022, released in 2023, but it's about 2022. So that's the thing. Yeah, I got really confused there. Yeah, well, that was the idea, was to, to, to shock people so they go, what? The last ever episode? So this is all part of the whole, you know, theatre of the of the podcast. But that's, what, that's why people tune in, don't they? They just love that. Well, I think they probably tune in for us to talk about our favourite films and our worst films of the year, which yeah, we're about to do. That is true. Over the next couple of podcasts, we're going to talk about the best films of the year and the worst films of the year. And we're going to try and work out if it has been a good year or a bad year for films. Uh, see where our kind of judgement lies down on that. Uh, we have, what, three films each. For the, for the best, our sort of top three. Mine are not really in any order, but I, I've sort of structured them in a gentle order. We have this argument every single year. like <laughs> Yeah, I, my, and mine are just in a list. I, I like lists. Just call me Mr. BuzzFeed. But yeah, I've, I've got a list. I'll, I'll see if that one. catches on. Yeah. Like, I can start crediting you as that if you like. No, please don't. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I've I've got a three, two, one, fairly formulaic for my end, but yours are a bit mixed up. Yeah, kind of mixed up. I don't know. I I guess maybe we'll get into that as we we go into it. It's not really important. It's the these are the top three. Support to me. <laughs> as I say, I love lists. Well, you do love lists, Mister Buzzfeed. Yeah. But, well, <laughs> um. Okay, so I guess yeah. Without any further ado, let's crack on. You, well, you volunteered. To go first in this and give us a, the uh, or number three of your best films of the year. So, uh, Sam, what's your number three? Yeah, well, the, my third favorite film of the year was All My Friends Hate Me. The story is about Pete. He heads to the rural countryside where a group of his old uni friends are throwing him a birthday party. So they've been uh, distant pals for a number of years. They haven't really seen each other in a, in a long time. Uh, but Pete is disturbed by the inclusion of Harry, a local who he's never met before, but his group of friends claimed to have met down the pub uh, prior to Pete's arrival, and here's a little clip for you. Guys? I feel like I say they're really not stereotypical posh people. Who else is going to be there? Just the old gang, plus some random guy called Harry that they picked up in a pub. Sorry, I'll probably introduced myself to the birthday boy. Heard a lot about you. Apparently you're one of the funniest guys on the planet. <laughs> Listen, Pete, this weekend so far, I mean, you've been a bit crap, haven't you? What? Yeah, so I think All My Friends Hate Me is one of the best British comedies I've ever seen. You know, I don't want to call it a classic too soon, and it does feel a little bit early. Uh, but I'm hoping I look back on this film in ten years, and it still remains this good and funny. Um, it's just so dark and sinister, and I think it's really, really hard to do social satires, uh, even now. But I think this is a really funny um, exploration of millennialism. 
And so obviously millennialism. Bi- millennialism. Millennial- millennialism. Try saying that three times. No, I, I can even I can't even say it first time. <laughs> so let's uh, move on. But so being a millennial, uh, you, you know, it, it's kind of themes such as having access to technologies or mental health awareness. Uh, the ideas of political correctness, and, and all of these are kind of explored uh, in different ways. It feels like an original and fresh comedy because of that, but it's also extremely terrifying. Like, it was my most uncomfortable experience in a cinema all year. Yeah. Um, I, I My skin was crawling through some of the scenes because they're so horrible to sit through because of the social embarrassment that happens to a lot of these characters. Yeah. And things just get worse and worse, particularly for Pete, uh, who is often the one um, on the on the end of some of these jokes or some of these really, really embarrassing situations. Yeah. Uh, and it just it's just a really, really hard film to watch. And I think I'd like to be able to watch it again, but almost with that you know, without that sense of dread. So I could try and find it more hilarious this time. Mm. Maybe we need to get the director to do like a, a Sam cut, remove any of the things that are too anxiety-inducing and, and, and just leave you with the laughs. But that, it wouldn't be as good. Obviously, no. it wouldn't be as the good. The whole point of the film is, is that it's uh, all about that kind of anxiety. And, and the film, as it goes along, it's challenging the audience to basically say, is there something going on underneath? that's very, very sinister, or is this just Pete's social anxiety? And, and yeah, and that's the driving force of the film and the horror behind the film. So it's one part The Shining, one part Peep Show, almost. Yeah, I was going to say that. I think one of the reasons I responded to it so well was that it did remind me of some of those naughty sitcoms like Peep Show in The Office, mm. uh, two of my favourite sitcoms of all time. And I could be wrong, but I just don't think we ever got a cinematic equivalent of that, especially not during the noughties. I mean, some of the actors in that, David Mitchell, Robert Webb, Ricky Gervais, Steve Merchant, they've all gone and they've made certain comedies, but nothing mm. like uh, that we saw from the sitcoms that they produced. Yeah. But All My Friends Hate Me feels like it's written by people who love that sort of sitcom. Yeah. And it, it, there is something quintessentially British about it, where it's just on that line. Yeah between really, really cringe-inducing, but also really, really funny. And I have never seen a film... Well, I mean, there are films like this, but I haven't seen a film of late that does this so expertly. It's just so well-written, so well-directed, and brilliantly acted. You know, I was a bit underwhelmed by this. I was was really looking forward to it, and actually, I came out of it and felt a bit... Yeah, underwhelmed. Uh, I loved the concept, and I loved... The places that it went, and I'm I'm not going to give anything away, but I, I I didn't feel like there was enough of a bang at the end. But then, that's sort of the point of the film as well is that what it, the stuff that it's dealing with doesn't always have that bang at the end. It doesn't necessarily need that. And I did love some of the awkward moments, and that was great. But. I didn't really respond to it the same way that you I, did I think all. you're completely wrong. Sorry, I really wanted to cut you off about 30 seconds ago. I think you're so wrong about that ending. The momentum and execution of it, and the joke that they make right at the end of the film, it you know, I, I was left there almost just kind of like shaking. Just because by the end, you just want to leave the cinema and get away from it. Because it, it, wow. throughout, throughout this film, like the character of Pete, he always feels like he's on the outside of the joke. Yeah, and it just it goes to a certain extreme towards the end of the film, where you really think there's no coming back. 
back from it. And even at the end, there's kind of just this one extra joke, which sent me into a bit of a spiral. So, yeah, I completely disagree. I think the writing's so sharp. It ends really, really well. And, yeah, it's why it's my, my number three of the year. Yeah, I, I think that it could do with a rewatch. I think I, I, you've inspired me to watch it again, because I, really, I do really want to watch it again. Because I think there is something here that's special... And I think maybe it will hit me a bit better the, the second time round. I think it's one of those films. And I do think there's a lot of question marks left on the film as well at the end. And uh, maybe one day if it comes up in the podcast again, we can, we can pick at them a little bit. Seems to me like you're never in on the joke. Everybody loves you, PD. Okay, so what's your number three of the year, or your sort of... You can call call it the number three. Call call it the number three, just to sell everything. My number three is The Batman. Uh, This is the the latest incarnation of uh, the famous DC superhero, Batman, directed by Matt Reeves. Batman is one year into his crime fighting, which he took the mantle up uh, since he was traumatised by the death of his parents. Uh, He comes across a serial killer known as the Riddler, who is threatening to expose the darker secrets of Gotham. And it's up to Batman, with help from James Gordon, uh, a high-ranking police officer, and Catwoman, a thief and hustler, who can help him solve the case and hopefully save Gotham as well. The killer left this for the Batman. Why is he writing to you? Riddler's latest. It's all about the Waynes. If we don't stand up, no one will. I'm just here to unmask the truth about this cesspool we call a city. You're part of this, too. Hands up! Stay still! How am I part of this? Oh, you're really not as smart as I thought you were. Yeah, so that was a clip from the Batman. It would be uh, remiss of me not to say that we uh, we did a podcast on this earlier in the year. Yeah, uh, when it came out in March, I believe. Yeah, I think we just did just after. Yeah, just after yep. then. Yeah. So for a deeper dive, you can uh, return to that. But we'll try not cover old ground as succinctly as possible. Uh, what makes it so special for and you? It's going to be wonderful because you won't be able to argue back with me and tell me that it's like a little bit mediocre like you did in that podcast. <laughs> You'll just have to listen to me tell you how absolutely fucking amazing this film was. I also, um, sorry, I also said in that podcast I would rewatch it, which I haven't done. <laughs> but I take it that you have quite a few times. Oh, just 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 about like four or five times. Yeah. <laughs> and I never, re-watch, I never rewatch a film, but I definitely rewatch this. I mean, it, this is just a thrilling action saga and it's a perfect adaptation of the things at the core of the character morality society uh, justice and those i mean those ideas at the core of the character how do you make a better world and the conflicts that arise from this they're all brought up to date with nods to our own divided unequal uh, world you know like the the alt right and uh, spree shootings and the generally like divided political nature of our society it's all there it is jaw-droppingly shot, like those rain-swept streets and dark corners of the underworld. Like, it's perfect noir stuff that, that Gotham is framed as. And although this is a Batman film and elements of it you will have seen before, they try their best to kind of veer away, especially visually, from stuff that you've seen before. So things like his body armour. He just walks into the bullets rather than dodging them around or having some something too choreographed. He's just got this super body armour. Like, he, the grapple guns 
he has he never uses to like swing on stuff but they're also like permanently fixed to his wrists uh the lack of batarangs and other gadgets and only kind of one moment of awkward realistic gliding through the sky and all this stuff kind of sets it apart i mean it is very long and occasionally misses the mark i think paul dano's riddler is a bit too much sometimes but i think it's a success and a lot of that comes down to Matt Reeves, a director who's great at mixing spectacle and action with something more cerebral. As you mentioned, I rarely rewatch a film in the same year. The Batman I've watched four or five times. I could watch it again right now uh, with absolutely no shame. One of the reasons I put it at number three is that I kind of acknowledge this is part of it entering this is a bit of a fan thing. I've been obsessed with Batman my entire life and an adaptation like this is going to tick all the boxes for me. But I think even if you're not a Batman fan, I think you will enjoy something like this that really gets what makes a great Batman film and can also give you a bunch of stuff that you haven't seen before or just some really just just great top quality, dark and moody, bat-shaped frills. I mean, it's, it's just got it all. Well, that was nearly as long as the film. Um, <laughs> but yeah, to be honest, I think when you were describing some of the themes there, I did just think you were talking about a Nolan Batman film. No. I honestly, I think part of that truly, when you're talking about this kind of device of society, the rise of like the rebellious groups, these are all things that were covered in the Batman trilogy. I just don't think the the original, not sorry, not the original, the Nolan Batman trilogy, um, and I just don't think there's enough of a divergence from that. Um, there are like lots of things going for it. I think the yeah, some of the action sequences are really good. Some of the shots are really well, really well composed. Uh, there's some really nice use of color, especially. In like in terms of the rain, in terms of the blackness, but for me, I just think it was quite mediocre. It was quite long, um, and to be honest, you talk about people who aren't Batman fans liking it just through word of mouth, just through conversation. I haven't really met many people that were big fans of this or would advocate it to be better than some of the Nolan Batmans. And I know we shouldn't compare, and that's probably like a little bit wrong of me. But for me, I think this was this was a solid effort. I don't think all of the elements worked very well. Um, as you mentioned, I don't think the Riddler could be a bit improved upon. I definitely think the Penguin was a little bit wasted, and he came out with a few cliches, even though he's played quite well by by Colin Farrell. But yeah, I just think all over the film, they could it could have been a little bit stronger. I mean, I, I think you can compare and should compare. It's the same character. You can compare those films. That's absolutely fine. I think Nolan does channel a lot of those ideas in a really good way, but I think he always ends up at a completely different location. He, he does touch on ideas about morality and right or wrong, but sometimes he just ends up in a completely different position. Like, The Dark Knight is a great film, and it and it talks about being the best self-unchanging society in a better way, but also kind of ends up in, like, a slightly weird place of, well, I could I could be the enemy. I don't have to just be a thing of hope. I can be the enemy. Or surveilling everyone is absolutely fine because as long as good people are doing it, it's absolutely fine. I would say that that's the thing about the Batman. Yeah, I think it's a bit more ambiguous than that. But a, I when, like when, that the fact that the Batman isn't quite as conservative as all of Christopher Nolan's films. Uh, the filthy. Oh, right we're really getting. Up. We're going yeah, to turn another. We podcast. have no time for this. We have no time for this. We've got to keep going. Right. I, I think that the Batman is a much purer form of those ideas. I think that the whole point of the film, at the end, you are left with this idea of a character like Batman that started with just wanting to quite recklessly and quite selfishly take vengeance and try and balance the scales and now he realizes that he can be something 
greater, something bigger. And although I do think that the Nolan films touched on this, this is a much purer version of that. And that's why I think it's such a successful adaptation. And yeah, I love this. I don't know if it's going to really hold itself together completely for the next stuff. Some of the weaker things that you've mentioned and I and I've acknowledged... I think it could kind of pull the sequel apart a little bit. So I'm I'm nervous about the, the sequel. But this, I, I just adored, loved. You know, really gave me hope for big films, superhero films and Batman films again. So if you haven't watched it yet, you should. Or I'll watch it again for you. Doesn't matter. Well, yeah, take a week off and watch it. <laughs> Maybe we're not so different. Who are you under there? So Sam, what's uh, next on your list? Your number two. My number two of the year is Red Rocket, uh, which was released last spring. It's about Mikey, who's an adult film actor. He returns home to Texas City with no money and pleads with his ex-wife to let him back into her house where she resides with her mother. Unable to get a job, he starts selling drugs to make money. His life is then changed when he meets 17-year-old Strawberry, who works at the local donut shop. So why are you back, Mr. Hollywood? Mikey, welcome back, dude. I'm on top of my game right now on like every single possible level. Physical stamina, my mind is sharp. I'm taking 5-HTP for serotonin in my brain. Yeah. With my skill and ability, there's no denying what I can do. The universe is on my side, bro. Before long, it'll be like we're still married. We are still married. I'm doing this tonight, you're probably gonna start a fire. What's your name? Everybody calls me Strawberry. You're like an extraterrestrial around here. Don't fuck with me. Not. So yeah, that was a clip from uh, the film Red Rocket. So the film opens uh, with Mikey on his way back to Texas. And you've got this really gaudy pop song from the 90s playing. It's like Bye 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 NSYNC. Uh, bye 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 yeah. bye bye. Da, 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 don't da, da. don't Sorry. don't don't. Sorry. Are you going to do that? But like <laughs> older people, not older people, millennials. Millennials remember that song uh, quite well. Um, it's a really good way to start the film. Uh, it could represent where he's come from, sort of the garish, flashy, and bright world of California, and it's a complete contrast to the bleak landscape of his home. Um, the post for this film is him naked in this donut costume, pulling a camp face, making it look like an outrageous comedy. Uh, even the trailer for the film creates this idea of a fish-out-of-water comedy in which a man has to return to his roots with hilarious consequences. But it's, just, <laughs> it's not that at all. I think that the marketing of the film might be deliberately misleading because actually I think the second half of the film is about a man who's a groomer and a mass manipulator. Um, it really catches you off guard, to be honest, because... The first half of the film is about someone rebuilding his life, and there is something quite admirable about that. You can tell that he's charismatic, even though you know that there's something psychologically perhaps not right with him. Mm. And then as soon as he starts to get to know Strawberry, uh, who, yeah, who's this sort of very young, very impressionable girl, is never shown in, like, a sinister way. <laughs> that kind of makes it more sinister. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. The sense that the 100%. world, that in Texas City, where, where they are... That it's never really shown in this horrible or depressing light, and, and Sean Baker, the director, has form for that because he did the same with his previous film, The Florida Project, which was also set in quite a deprived place. Yeah. But it does seem, you know, there's something quite sort of colourful and fresh about it. But yeah, I, I think it's, I think it could be about a film about a sexual predator, and it just catches you completely off guard, and it's just such a clever and well built film, but. Yeah, I, I thought it might have just been me who was watching this and thinking, 
there is serious, serious issues with this guy, and you kind of should maybe like watch out for, I don't know, for people like that in society, someone who comes across as quite charismatic, quite charming, yeah. but he's really just looking out for himself and yeah. looking for ways to make money out of other people. I mean, he's a grifter in a way, and yeah, I just think it's such a strange but but actually quite brave film to make. But uh, yeah, I found it really, really distinctive and, and really, really rewarding. Yeah, I love Red Rocket. I uh, saw it just before the beginning of 2022 uh, at the BFI Film Festival. Sean Baker is a wonderful filmmaker. There is just no one that could quite shoot American poverty like Sean Baker. He finds these locations and finds a way to really bring to life the underclass that live there, sometimes by doing a lot of street casting, you know, getting just regular people that live in that area uh, to be in the film and, and be supporting characters. But there's also just something about... The which cult, adds to the authenticity. Which adds to the authenticity. But something about the landscape of it as well. Like all these old industrial uh, buildings and uh, dilapidated, well, everything really. As well as the subject matter, which is about a kind of people that you never really hear about, but you feel like they could exist. And he shoots really gaudy things and really gaudy locations as, as well. There's something like really tacky about all the places that he shoots because a lot of his characters, and it's definitely in Red Rocket, it's these characters that want to be the next big thing, want to be millionaires, but but can't see that they're, they are trapped in something like really, really horrible. Or perhaps they are trappers themselves, like, like Mikey in this. I, I actually don't want to make it sound like He's, this is some kind of like poverty porn or something. Like there is something very, very sensitive about this and feels very authentic as well. And the characters are, are real as well, which yeah. I think is, is really important. Because obviously, as you say, with poverty porn, I think there can be like a really cold and calculated way that you can look at these people and see them as victims. And in this and the Florida Project, which was made in 2015, yeah. you get that. You get a sense of, of realism, but also positive character development. Not with with Mikey, but perhaps with, with other characters in the film. I think with Mikey, I'm a, I'm a bit torn. I think a lot of people respond to this and saying he's a predator, and I think he is to an extent. But I, you know, it's hard because it, one, well, the first thing is, is actually Simon Rex, previous like MTVJ and underground rapper, is just amazing at this. It's just wonderful to see a film which, you know, an actor has absolutely been born to play that role. Especially someone like Simon Rex, who's who's not a big name, probably never going to be a big name. And he's only in very, very small circles. And almost like a pub quiz question, really. But somehow him and Sean Baker found each other and found this role. And, I, and I, it's wonderful to think that there's always a role out there for every actor that's going to be there perfect role, something they were born to play, because Simon Rex found it in this. It's wonderful, and I hope he capitalises on this and does more stuff. I feel really sorry for Mikey, even though he is a, a manipulator, and yeah, to an extent a predator. You you want to believe that this is a redemption arc, that and, and I think there's a possibility that by the end that he could be on something that he's going to become a better person and stop being so shitty to everyone and yeah, using I mean, people and I really and I think it's like all Sean Baker films I think it, it ends on ambiguity and they, it is open to interpretation it is I open think to we've interpretation. both come down we've both come down on the same side of it uh, but yeah there is open to interpretation that maybe he is going to make his life better in some way and you know maybe if he gets the girl and you know moves somewhere else maybe he's going to be a success but there is something quite nasty about him and it feels like because of his decisions, bad things happen to the people around him. And you get this sense that 
it's always been like that. This isn't something new. It's and, circular. Yeah. But that's like poverty. I think poverty is circular. People get trapped in these things. And I think his life and the life of a lot of the characters are circular. And I don't know. I suppose the film ultimately is about whether or not he can break this cycle. And I, I would think that the way for him to break a cycle is not to get the girl, really, yeah. to get out of this and get on something else. But yeah, it's a really wonderful, really unique film. I think if this was a bigger list, Red Rocket 100% would be in mine. Yeah, so to summarise, like I've perhaps made it sound like a little bit depressing, but it's not. It's a really vibrant, interesting film. It's a really good character piece. I definitely think it's ambiguous, even though you perhaps come down on one side of the character and what essentially his motivations are. But um, yeah, it's a really fascinating. I think it's a really entertaining film as well, um, and definitely worth seeing if you didn't in 2022. Life sweet, Sophie. Life is sweet. So, are we at the joint first, or... No, we're at number two. Number two. But it's not the number two, like, it's, it's these, this oh, list is... Oh, yeah, well, how, where it falls in my yeah. list. I suppose I've got two films here that were really hard to choose between, and ultimately, I think they're both very different films, but both are very, very high quality, but are both are about the world in completely different ways. And I suppose I've picked this one, because it's a little bit more of a pessimistic view on existence, but not one that I necessarily disagree with. It's just looking at different aspects of of the world. So number two for me is Triangle of Sadness, uh, the latest film by Ruben Osterlund, uh, who made uh, Force Majeure and The Square. It's the story of two supermodels um, who are a couple, Yaya and Carl, who are on a glamorous luxury cruise for the super rich and the super beautiful. And then there is a terrible storm outside that hits the ship and causes a bunch of chaos. And then the film takes a more fable-like turn. The Russian capitalist. And an American communist. <laughs> On a $250 million luxury yacht. We have to work together. Create a good group. Good society. So this is a, a biting, pitch-perfect satire. Not just of our society now but of human civilization in total. Although it's been pitched as mocking the rich, and it is very much about that, but the truth is no one is safe in this uh, black comedy. Osterland creates this agonizing, toe-curlingly embarrassing comedy moments, perhaps a little bit similar to All My Friends Hate Me earlier. Impossible. Would... It can't be as toe-curling as All My Friends Hate Me. <laughs> I don't think it is, but no, it's anyway. Not. This is still lots of awkward moments. But that he sets those awkward moments up in a context that gives it a larger message. So, like, the first scene is this argument between the two supermodels who are a couple and they're arguing about who should pay the bill for their meal. The scene's kind of about how we still have this awkward hypocrisy with certain gender norms. So it's trying to shove a a knife into that. Uh, But then also that wealth kind of trumps everything. And it also just shows you the completely superficial nature of this relationship and sets everything up for for what's about to happen. There's there's almost too much that goes on in this film to boil down to just one, one segment. 
But ostensibly, it's about the super-rich and the privileged suddenly losing all their power and being in a crisis. It presents these vacuous, shallow and immoral people having the scales balanced. And I think in a world like ours that is so divided and one of the, the real problems in society is not that there are rich and poor people, but it's the gap between the rich and the poor people. That's what causes these like really serious problems there are plenty of other metaphors in it about climate change about men and women and that that gender divide but about power in general it is really ultimately a film all about power and And who has the power and who has the power and what effect that has but it's such a funny film it's a really brilliant comedy it can slide effortlessly between so many different kinds of humor like this gross out slapstick or farce all the way to, to the social commentary that i'm talking about you know it's this really rich really funny story all about us all about our society it's how cruel and callous our society has become how distracted we are from the real problems that face us as a society and how power always corrupts and maybe that's why we're all doomed i hate to make it sound like a lot or too complicated or you're gonna have to like have a really serious hat on to watch this because you don't it is just a really legitimately funny story that i think you'll get a lot out of and yeah it's just wonderful yeah it's really well composed because it's almost like three films in one right yeah you obviously get the first bit of the film which is this couple second bit of the film takes place on a boat and don't really want to spoil the last part but let's just say it takes place in another setting yeah but yeah it's just a really good way about how these kind of different kinds of people mix and about how like superficial the lives the one percent lead are, and actually yeah. how they're all deeply unhappy, yeah, and perhaps even being used in some way. But yeah, for me, I pretty much agree with everything that you said. It's one of the strongest films of the year. Uh, I haven't really seen a film like it before. It does have some very very uncomfortable and and hard to watch moments, but again, that just makes it all the more absorbing, really. As you say, like it's another really, really good satire on how kind of people live their lives with with loads and loads of money, and ultimately how yeah. maybe there isn't a huge amount of difference between rich and poor when it comes down to it. Well, or maybe let's just say there are similarities and there are huge differences. There as is well. a certain amount of human nature that yes, takes over. Yeah. I mean, again, this is why the film, although I think it's been billed as about being a satire on the rich, I think what makes people rich and what gives people power i think we get pretty obsessed with the differences between the classes and between rich and poor and that's fair enough but that there is something really really uncomfortable in it that i think it makes the case for a certain ugliness in all people whenever you have to be the the one in charge and anyone that is in charge in that film lets people down and that's ultimately the kind of the satire on the film. So it's a really cynical film. It's a it's a very cynical film, uh, but it's really really funny. And I think and that cynicism that cynicism kind of makes it quite funny. I yeah, guess. definitely, hundred percent, like hundred percent. But it is not a drag at all. It's a great talking point as well. It is a really rich, really funny, perfect satire of our times. And I I think everyone should watch it. The ship is going under. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just the song, but for everyone. This is really bad. This is really, really bad. 
Yeah, so we're on to number one. Number one. So this is your number number one film of 2022. Yeah, the, Sam, lay it on us. The yeah, the best film I saw this year was The Stranger, uh, which I saw at the London Film Festival. Uh, it was released on Netflix not too soon. After that, so the story is about Mark, an undercover cop posing as a member of a criminal gang. Uh, he takes a man by the name of Henry Teague under his wing. It's up to Mark to befriend Henry, gain his trust, and then consider whether he was responsible for a murder that took place a few years previously. The whole operation hinges on you getting closer with him. But I know you know this. Don't find yourself in terrain that you're unfamiliar with. Hey, do you want me to teach you something that I learned at work? Close your eyes, and you're gonna breathe in. And when you breathe in, you're gonna imagine that you're breathing in really clear air. And then when you breathe out, you breathe out all the black, dark, bad air. So I think before I start getting into the film, I'd say this is part of this true crime uh, genre, but actually I think this is an example of a true crime film that just about sits on the right side of the fence in terms of uh, how it's made ethically and morally, because even though it's based loosely on a crime that did happen in Australia, it doesn't use any of the real names, and some of the events have been changed, uh, and it's more of a story about an undercover cop rather than the filmmakers trying to recreate this true story and then make all the immoral and unethical decisions that come with uh, making a film about true crime. Um, I think most of the time it's a very ugly genre, uh, but actually I think this is an example of a film that does it quite well and it doesn't really become about, oh, I wonder if this happened, I wonder if this didn't happen. I think one of the most powerful elements of it is the use of silence, because a lot of the film is about what's unsaid. Uh, and I think if you're going to make a film like that, it's really good to get two incredible actors uh, like Joel Edgerton and Sean Harris, who have this brooding intensity. Uh, Joel Edgerton plays the cop, uh, Mark Frame, and Sean Harris plays the person that he's investigating, uh, Henry Teague. I mean, maybe it's a little bit wrong of me to describe the film in this way, because when it starts, you're actually not sure who is the protagonist, uh, or who's the cop and who's the villain. Because uh, you're introduced to Henry before you're introduced into Mark. So you kind of get the sense of where is where is Henry going? What's his, you know, what's his motivation? And then actually it's when he's, he meets Mark, that's when kind of events start to turn and move quite quickly. But yeah, it's just all made in this barren and isolated setting. And the intensity and the tension throughout the film is just really, really palpable. I think we've talked a bit before in the podcast about how great directing is tone management. And I just think all the way through this film, there's this incredible pace and slow burn type of builder. I think, obviously, when people talk about pace, mm. they talk about how quick a film can be and how it can really, really escalate. But the really important thing about this and why it makes it such a good thriller is that there's really slow developments. When it gets to the end, it becomes almost terrifying in a way. There's all this dread that's been built up due to this slow burn of events and slow burn of dialogue or lack mm -hmm. of dialogue. Uh, and yeah, towards the end of the film, you just get this huge, incredible crescendo. 
I watched it in a cinema, and I think it was the best way to watch it, just because you're surrounded by other people, and I could tell that the audience were reacting it to the way that I was, in the sense that, you know, you could hear a pin drop, and and the fact that it's kind of like a a film about an undercover cop, Mm -hmm. there's so much danger and peril there, because, you know, if he makes one mistake, then the whole case could disappear. But yeah, it's just presented and executed in in such such a good way. I guess I just think that these films are quite hard to make. And a lot of the time, they can be a bit boring or mundane. But I just think this film is really well written, uh, amazingly acted. I'd give either Joel Edgerton or Sean Harris like awards right now for it. That probably isn't going to happen <laughs> due to the subject matter. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I just really, really want to champion it. Because it's not the easiest of watches. It is quite depressing in parts. But I just think the, the composition of it, the way it's edited, the cinematography, all these technical parts that makes a film really really special yeah um thomas m wright the director it really really pulls that off uh, i think it's a wonderful piece of work i think it's a masterpiece uh, i don't want to use that word too broadly or lightly mm. um in a film podcast but i do think it's one of those films that will stand the test of time yeah it is not an easy watch um i did not respond to it like you did but i was really glad to actually have you there to interpret it and bounce some ideas off of you and hear what you thought about it because i think it does become a lot richer when you can talk about it with 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 someone because it's such an intense experience and it's such like a, a, a dark and murky one that you need to go away and think about it and you need to like talk about it with someone to really get a kind of understanding of it a bit more yeah i mean possibly i'd say that there is this idea of an undercover cop worried that he's becoming too like the person or the people that he's investigating. That slightly concerns me that that is like a trope that has been investigated before. I know that some people might go into this film and be like, okay, I've, I've seen this in a few other films. Yeah. It's not explored in a completely different way, but I still think it's done in a, a subtle and intelligent way. I, or, or, I, more, or more so than other films. I think it's very subtle if it's there, but I'm not sure it was there at all about him turning into one another. I mean, it sort of is. But more than that, you are watching the the trap slowly shut on someone. That's what you're watching. And, and what the film is really good at doing is very slowly and delicately unravelling who this person is and this terrible crime that's been committed and what they're trying to do what the police are trying to do to get some justice and everything slides more and more into place as the film goes on and that is a real achievement this is a crime story from a completely different perspective that you've never seen before and it is handled in a way that is really unsettling and at times genuinely terrifying that's its real strength you get an understanding of so someone has done something monstrous, but to capture them, it's it's not a case of, of doing anything dramatic or becoming a monster yourself. It's just a case of understanding that this, this person is a monster because if we do this in the wrong way, they're going to be gone. You, you, you can't, you're not going to be able to get them. So you have to slowly move in, methodically work out how to trap this guy. Yeah, and there's a weird vulnerability about Henry, yeah. which Sean Harris, again, does so, so well, because there's this sense at one point during the scene that you feel that maybe there's other people in his family that have let him down. You have to catch yourself at times, because I don't think 
this film ever presents him as you know a complete monster. No. You feel that there have been reasons behind what he's done. So there's a bit of duality in in terms of that, but. I mean, I don't always like describing people as monsters, especially in the context of this film, because I think this is a this is a film about the realism of it and not about the outrage or the kind of like vengeance or anything. This is about the opposite to that. This is about law enforcement trying to balance those scales and the tense mental strain that it takes to do something like that. Yeah, and even the strain that happens afterwards as well. Yeah. And perhaps even, like, it maybe explores towards the end whether that changes you as a person. But yeah, again, perhaps probably a bigger debate for another time. But yeah, I mean, overall, I just felt it was a film that as soon as I sat through it and as soon as it started, I was completely hooked and completely mesmerised. It's just so... It's a very mesmeric film. Yeah. It's just so strong in so many different elements and it's probably not going to be for everyone. Out of all three films that I've talked about, it's the one that's least universal. Yeah, this is a really acquired taste. Yeah, it's it's gritty, it's depressing, it's hard to watch, but it is worth it. Once you get through to the end, it feels like you've been on a ride of pure terror. But one that's really masterfully handled, I think, as you said yeah. uh, earlier... And yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the director does next. Sean Harris is one of my favourite actors. Um, Joel Edgerton makes every film he's in better, even if the films itself aren't very good. So yeah, hopefully the same team can make another film in the future. Um, it's my favourite film of the year. I think it's I think it's an absolute masterpiece. This is the largest missing persons case in the history of our state and is one of the largest in the history of our country. At the time, detectives found insufficient evidence for him to be considered a person of interest. Whole body's gonna relax. Your feet, your knees, your hips, your stomach, your chest. Okay, so my favourite film of the year. Sort of. Sort of favourite film of the year. Along with the others, maybe. You're the one making this more complicated now. Yeah. I'm not even getting into this. This whole thing of me and my lists, my best films list. Sorry, I am making this convoluted. <laughs> I just, maybe I just did, because I love lists so much. I just can't, I'm trying to get my head around it. But yeah, anyway, so this this is the film that is is it is it your favorite yeah it's my favorite, favorite film of the year. Okay. let's just right. say it's my favorite film of the year right. and it's, it's for my benefit if no one for else your is. benefit if no one else is probably no great surprise to any regular listeners of this podcast it's everything everywhere all at once uh the everything everywhere all at once is the story of uh evelyn a uh, middle-aged laundromat owner that emigrated from china to America and is raising uh, one daughter, uh, is in a strained marriage, is on the verge of divorce and she has a very important, very intense meeting with the IRS, uh, the tax people in America. While she's there though, another version of her husband appears and tells her that the fate of the universe is in balance unless she can utilise the futuristic skills by drawing on other versions of herself from the multiverse and using their skills in order to defeat a great existential evil. Evelyn, I'm not your husband. I'm another version of all from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, whole time to help you. Across the multiverse. 
seen thousands of Evelyns. You can access all their memories, their emotions, even their skills. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses. And you may be your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. So what I love about this year, about 2022, is basically we have a film in Triangle of Sadness which perfectly captures why you should be pessimistic about humanity and everything everywhere all at once, which is all about why human existence is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And that's just amazing to have those two films that I feel so eloquently and perfectly tell you so much about the human experience from different ends of the spectrum but everything everywhere all at once is is this really ambitious genre splicing existential journey it's both science fiction action family drama comedy and on that family drama side actually sort of uses the evelyn's family drama and kind of circles around it and then jumps into the sci-fi concept that's like a silly version of The Matrix, basically. But that's taken just as seriously, but with jokes that have this lewd silliness of a nine-year-old. We sort of keep sliding between the micro version of this woman, unhappy in life and her family, and the macro of all of our lives, and humanity's journey into self-realisation. It manages to give you all these ideas about love and family and disappointment and nihilism and just keeps hitting you with these points, these reasons to give up and then pulls you back into this warm, happy, optimistic core. And I know it does sound like a lot. I make Triangle of Sand sound like a lot. I'm making this sound like a lot. And it might be too weird for some people, but it's an utterly original joy of a film. Philosophy and hot dog fingers. That's that's my film of the year. Yeah, it's another film we covered, so we did a whole episode on it. Yeah, uh, and you can always go back and listen to that again if you want. Yeah, shameless plug, shameless plug, shameless plug. But no, I think you've done a good summary of it, really. Yeah, uh, Thank you. <laughs> I think it is mad, truly original, well written, loads of fun. I perhaps think it's a bit shallow now. I haven't gone back to rewatch it. Mm. And I think my memory from this film, so in retrospect, is like a good comedy with some really nice sci-fi elements to it. Yeah. But I perhaps wouldn't watch it again. I think I did say on the podcast that we did that I'd like to return to it. And I feel I've seen it. I had a lot of fun. It is smart. Sometimes it's really silly. As you said, it's kind of got that hybrid element to it that it takes itself really seriously, but also doesn't take itself seriously at all. Yeah. And yeah, that's what makes it a chaotic mess, but in a good and rewarding way. And I think that maybe taking it very seriously, but also not taking it seriously at all, is the best way to view you know, life, the universe, and everything. Douglas Adams did it decades and decades ago with Hitchhiker's Guide, and people have always returned to that. And I think that in the the same way, I think everything, everywhere, all at once will re- remain a, a really original, great, beloved sci-fi classic. Um, so I think completely differently from you. It, it's really rare to have an experience the kind that you have when the directors... Uh, they're collectively called Daniels. They both have Daniel in their name. And so it's really rare to have people that can channel so many really wonderful moving ideas and make it really funny, really crude, 
really, really silly. It, it really is an experience like no other. And, and I just think for, for that alone, and the fact that it made me cry in the cinema as well, it's got to be the best thing I've seen this year. It's such a like, really like positive outlook. You can take it in so many ways. You can read it in so many ways. And it's such an optimistic and, and beautiful idea about life. You know, if you're going to watch one film this year, then watch this. That's what I say. Yeah, it is really optimistic, actually. Yeah. I think that's maybe a, a feeling or an emotion I forgot about it. Perhaps, like, that sense that you could kind of go out of a cinema and feel fulfilled and feel like, oh, actually, there are good things about the world that we live in. Yeah, there are. Uh, even though there are daily reminders that there aren't. And for that, go and watch Triangle of Sadness. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, 100%. That's, that's, that's the feeling you'll have coming out of this film. There's no way I am the Evelyn you are looking for. Every rejection, every disappointment has led you here to this moment. Don't let anything distract you from it. So that's it. Our best of the year. I, f- I felt like we were more divided this year than we are most years. We don't have shouting matches on this podcast really very often, but I think we we had some very different experiences with these films. Yeah, I think what I'd say about the Batman and everything everywhere all at once is that after I've watched them, I've come away and thought maybe it's a bit style over substance. Yeah, a bit of a cliched way to talk about films, but. I guess for both those films, when you've gone under the car bonnet or you've kind of investigated their depth, for me, there isn't a huge amount there. There are perhaps good ideas, but some that just won't really sustain me watching them again. While I feel like... You're mad. You're mad, I tell you. Well, I feel like with the three films I've chosen, (laughs) that there are those elements and you can look at those films and look at certain parts of them. Uh, slowly chisel away at their edges and unpick a few things and there's something very well layered about the the three films that I've chosen oh okay that's like that well, I, I mean I'd agree like that with Red Rocket um, I think The Stranger is brilliant but just tough just really really tough and I think I, I think it's interesting actually also it's not about a superhero <laughs> it's not about a superhero though every crime story should end with a big thing at the end where someone comes through the window and the music comes up and you go duh, 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 and everyone has a big fight that's how it should be that is the end of the stranger <laughs> <laughs> Would have loved that if it just completely did like a from dusk till dawn, completely change into this like action John Woo shootout at the end. That would have been great. Well, let's hope we see a film like that in 2023. He might do. And hey, if you're sticking around, the next one is going to be even more fun as we delve into the worst films that we've seen in in 2022. Uh, So stick around for that.